0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> You're dead to me. I realize that's not a very auspicious start to a sermon. <laughs> However, this is something which people say of those who are alive, but treat as if they are a dead. It's also a terrific dark comedy on Netflix. Um, on All Saints, we do exactly the opposite. Those who are dead we recognize as being alive to God, although dead to us for the time being. In today's gospel reading, it's a strange reading, but there's some wonderful things there. Jesus says to the Sadducees, God is not God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three dead patriarchs, are alive to God. And this is not yet the resurrection, but it is the basis for the resurrection. God who is fully alive, and has no association with death, ensures that all who die remain alive to him. Clearly, God sees us as alive even when we're dead. This is God's vision of us. And this is a wonderful reality. Uh, And of course, we know that our deadness is not just physical death. This is the nature of sin. Scripture makes it clear that sin works death in our physical being. And Paul reminds us that in Christ, We can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The sacrament of baptism we're going to celebrate today, Freya Bramson and Benjamin Cornwell, is, of course, this expression of coming to life from out of the depths, the watery chaos to recover the humanity that God first intended for us. But. This is of no value to us if we don't also have a corresponding vision of God. It is of no value to us if God is not alive to us. A vision of God is what transforms us and begins to resurrect us even before the great resurrection. And of course, we know the resurrection like the cross has already happened. We do hear a lot about the cross living cruciform lives based on Jesus' death and victory on the cross. I wonder, though, if we do as well hearing, internalizing, and living in the reality of that other big event in Jesus' life, the resurrection. Uh, Mary and I, Deacon Mary and Father James and I, we do morning prayer before we meet on, on Tuesdays of our uh, clergy meeting, and um, I led morning prayer one morning and went instinctively to the Pascha Nostrum. The Pasca Nostrum, of course, is... is, is uh, read during Eastertide, I wanted to read it, and James, Father James said, go ahead, because you know what, every day we can celebrate Easter. Every Sunday we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. We need to have an everyday vision of Easter life as God has for us. His vision for us is Easter life. We are alive to God, and the question this morning to consider, is he alive to us? The Anglican priest and pastor, Martin Thornton, was an expert in ascetical theology, growing in holiness. He wrote this, the end of man is not purity of heart, but the vision of God. The best way to attain the former purity of heart is by aiming purposely at the latter, the vision of God. And if we're struggling at all in our faith, it's primarily not an ascetical problem. It's a vision problem. Tammy and I have a good friend named Lolly Nichols. She's She's passed away, she's died, and uh, when she was at Wheaton, she uh, took swimming uh, with uh, swimming coach John Lederhaus, perhaps some of you know him, and when Lolly took these swimming classes with John Lederhaus, she never wore her glasses, obviously, in the pool, and um, she had pretty bad vision, but just enjoyed taking that class with with John and swam well, from what I gather. Um, And later on that semester, I think it was near graduation, uh, someone She had her glasses on and someone was coming up to her and said, hello, Lolly. And Lolly looks at this guy and says, who are you? He said, I'm John Lederhouse. your coach. She had her glasses on, she could see him. <laughs> I've used that story before, but perhaps you don't remember it. Um, <laughs> Our readings today are about putting our glasses on, this resurrection vision. I will touch briefly on Job and Luke here. Job, who's three friend tormentors uh, who mean well, but they've been preaching at him about his sin problem, and he can't take it anymore, and he goes off on them, so to speak. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me. He says, oh, you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? And then in the middle of the book, what Sarah read for us, Those beautiful words, he utters these words of resurrection life. And this is the climax to Job. I had heard you, God, with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Job's friends have thrown doctrine, dogma, and theology at him nonstop. And it was all fine and good, but it was all abstract and of no help to him in his acute distress. What Job wanted was not to just know the truth or just to know the truth, but to meet him who is the truth. And Job's reward is not the brand new family he gets at the end of the book to restore the ones he has lost. It is instead a vision of the one who took his children and then gave him children. To whom in heaven we are all as children, Jesus says the God of life who is alive in whatever death we experience and gives us his life in our death. In our gospel reading, the Sadducees, they lack this resurrection vision of God. They spin out this sad little thought experiment, a sorry excuse of a story. And the story that the Sadducees present about the bride, the the, the woman, who successively goes through seven husbands who die on her, it's a story not of life but of death. It's a story of repeated death, as if to emphasize their strong belief in the certainty and finality of death and its particular curse in a situation that seven men have in common, marriage to one woman who outlived all of them. Only after all of them had died did the woman die childless, which is another kind of death, in that there are no children to carry forward the family name. And the question they ask of Jesus, as if this is the burning question in heaven, whose wife is she? This is a reduction to absurdity. On earth, one husband at a time, seven times. In heaven, seven husbands at one time. And their their vignette about heaven perpetuates this earthbound, deathbound point of view, because the scene in heaven is absurd. I cannot speak for women, but I can imagine that this is not a heaven a woman wants to inhabit, where the primary identifier is (laughs) whose wife are you? (laughs) As if this is what identifies this woman, a wife. You know what? The Sadducees, in effect, they are reducing her to this and heaven to this. A woman might rather stay dead. And Jesus gives a brilliant rejoinder. He says, God is not God of the dead, but of the living. It's brilliant of Jesus to say this to the Sadducees, whose belief extended no further than the first five books of Moses, often called the Torah of the Pentateuch. And the Torah begins and ends with death. It begins with a decree of death when Adam and Eve choose the pleasures of sight and touch and taste over those of the soul. It ends with the actual death of Moses, the hero of the Torah's central story, Moses dies without crossing the Jordan and setting foot in the land to which he had led Israel. And that's where the story stops for the Sadducees. And Jesus says to them, in effect, oh, no, you're putting the book down, down way too early. You must read the rest of the story. Life is, this is their story. Life is hard with seven husbands, and then you die, and then you have to face all of them in heaven. This is not a story. <laughs> this is an argument they spin out, an exercise, a theory, a thought experiment, the full story of course is the incarnation where we are drawn into a relationship with God through Christ and it is that relationship which both shines brighter than all others and gives its life and its light to them in which and by which all our relationships with others de- derive their life and their meaning. Jesus says in heaven we are not given to one of the primary expressions of love on earth, the union of marriage. And perhaps our heavenly relationships are not something less than marriage, but something more. When God created the world, he declared, let there be. Let there be. And sin and death whisper, you are not enough, because what God has given you is not enough. So we reach for the forbidden fruit, which, of course, reduces and diminishes us, so we become something less. And evil seeks to diminish us into nothing, an absence of being. Let there not be. Resurrection life reclaims us from sin and death and says not only let there be again, but let there be more. There's always something more. And this is what God wants to give all of us and is always giving us if we will but allow him to open our eyes and see him as the lover and the giver of life. You know, when we reduce God to a theological abstraction, for lack of a vision of God, I believe we also reduce others for lack of a vision of God alive in them. They become an abstraction. They become a caricature, a distorted vision of themselves in our eyes, darkened by sin. We must see each other in the light and life of Christ's love for each one of us. How do we see God in the smallest of ways? Because the God of the universe is also the God of small things. and We must cultivate the eyes of our heart to see him. And it's not necessarily a Damascus vision that Paul had. I think it's more like Mary looking at Jesus after the resurrection, thinking he's the gardener. And of course, he is the gardener, and he's so much more. And then Mary realizes, Gradually, Lord, it's you. Can it be? It is. How do we see God? He's everywhere and in everything and in everyone if we're paying attention. God is revealed through his people as we love one another and see each other. And the power and the resurrection victory of God's love being seen through the eyes of love. And when we don't see each other, it's as if we don't exist and we are dead to each other. And you know, it's interesting, when we are at odds with someone, guess what? We avoid looking at them. You all know we rode out to a whirlwind trip to Pittsburgh, um, left Friday, came back Saturday. I rode with Ann McCarthy, uh, seven hours together. And we were driving, and uh, Ann was driving. She was looking at the road that was good. <laughs> so she didn't have to look at me because I know that Ann has been looking at me all along. And Ann asked one question Rob, have you been sleeping? I said, Well, <laughs> I said, Well, no, I've not been sleeping. How did you know? And she, in effect, said, Because I've been watching you. What's going on? And I was able to tell her. She saw me with Resurrection Life. Sarah Qualick, one of the staff of the diocese, on the finance team, wonderful. She gave a testimony to all of us at the convention. She said a few months ago, was it a few months ago? Yep. She said, I was in a dark place. And then she said, I prayed and God showed up. He brought the right people to me. We all sang sang happy birthday to her because it was her birthday on Saturday. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul, the great theologian who writes some pretty arcane stuff, wonderful stuff. But he also just exults when he writes, as he thinks about the people he loves. The letter. He's writing a letter to these people he loves. And you know what he says time and time again? He says it in Thessalonians, I long to see you face to face. May we long to see each other face to face. Of course, we're here together. We're looking at each other. I tend to just, you know, look aside like this. But let's look at each other with the deep love of Jesus. This morning, as we welcome Benjamin Cornwell and Freya Bramson into our family, as we pass the peace, may we truly look and see one another and see God there and see God in us. Amen.